2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality It's Monday, February 26th, 2024, the 1132nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'myourmoderator.substack.com. All right, so to get the week started, let's just update the subject of the week last week, which is the death of Alexei Navalny. Over the weekend, a man named General Kirill Budinov, who is said to be a general in Ukraine, the chief of their main directorate of intelligence called the HUR, he was on video saying— I may disappoint you, but as far as we know, he indeed died as the result of a blood clot. And this has been more or less confirmed. He chalked it up to what he called natural causes. The Daily Mail reported on this. Zero Hedge wrote all this up. They note that predictably U.S. mainstream outlets have been slow to report this latest assessment of the cause of Navalny's death. It was also reported that Navalny's mother, Ludmila Navalnaya, said her son's body was finally released to the family. Also from the article in Zero Hedge, another stunning development and further plot twist has emerged via Bloomberg reporting on Monday. Navalny was supposedly very close to being released amid secret talks involving the U.S. and Germany. Alexei Navalny had been close to release in a prisoner exchange with the U.S. and Germany shortly before his death in an Arctic prison, a top aide to the Russian opposition leader said. Navalny was supposed to be freed in the coming days, Maria Pevchik said in a video statement posted Monday. Russian President Vladimir Putin was offered an assassin imprisoned in Germany in exchange for Navalny and two U.S. citizens, she said. According to Zero Hedge, Moscow has long been seeking to gain the freedom of Vadim Krasikov, who is currently serving a life sentence in Germany for the 2019 assassination of a former Chechen rebel in a Berlin park. Krasikov is widely believed to be part of Russia's Federal Security Service or FSB. Washington had reportedly previously rebuffed any prisoner swap deal involving Krasikov. Related to talks in the context of the Brittany Griner and Victor Bout swap. The Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, ex Marine Paul Whelan, and schoolteacher Mark Fogel are all still in Russian custody. And Krasikov was actually mentioned in talks about a prisoner swap for Whelan back in 2022. And let's spend a second on Krasikov because I believe that Krasikov is who Vladimir Putin was discussing with Tucker Carlson. This is from Reuters on the 9th of February. Vadim Krasikov, the Russian hitman Putin wants to swap for U.S. journalist. The man Russian president Vladimir Putin wants in exchange for releasing American journalist Evan Gershkovich is Vadim Krasikov serving a life sentence for murdering an exiled Chechen-Georgian dissident in a Berlin park in broad daylight. Krasikov was born in what is now Kazakhstan, then part of the Soviet Union, in 1965. Open source investigators Bellingcat believe he later worked for Russia's FSB State Security Service. Yes, that is correct. Bellingcat is the one who figured all of this out. A German judge accused Russia of state terrorism Over the murder in Berlin's Tiergarten of Zelimkhan Kangoshvili, an ethnic Chechen of Georgian citizenship who commanded a militia in Chechnya's failed war seeking independence from Russia in the 2000s. The judge said the order to kill Kangoshvili, who was no longer active in the Chechen independence movement, must have come from Putin noting that Russian law gave him power to authorize operations to kill people the state regards as terrorists, even abroad. Russia contests the judge's interpretation. Krasikov, his lawyers, and until now the Russian state have contested his guilt and even identity, saying he is not the Russian state hitman prosecutors allege, but Vadim Sokolov, a Russian tourist visiting Berlin on a sunny August day. How was his identity confirmed? Reuters reports that intelligence shared by Ukraine provided the breakthrough. A similar looking man with identical tattoos had earlier been photographed attending a wedding in eastern Ukraine. That man was Krasikov. So there you go. Cat has solved another mystery, and it just so happens that the solution to this mystery is that Vladimir Putin is a bad, bad man. It's almost like Bellingcat is an anti-Putin intelligence organization. Referring directly to the Tucker Carlson interview here, Reuters writes, while Putin did not mention Krasikov's name, it was clear from his description of an individual, quote, who due to patriotic sentiments eliminated a bandit in one of the European capitals, end quote, that he believed a killing had been carried out. Krasikov cycled up behind Kangishvili on August 23rd, 2019, and shot him three times. He was caught moments later after passersby spotted him trying to change his clothes and dump his bicycle in a pond and alerted police. Traveling as a tourist, he had entered Germany via Paris the day before. Germany has always declined comment on reports that Russia might be seeking to swap Krasikov for Gershkovich. The swap would be unusual since it would entail Germany giving up a person convicted of murder on its own territory in order to recover a U.S. citizen. Yes, why would they do that? And again, this is from 17 days ago. Other reports have suggested Germany might seek to secure the release of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, a cause celeb for many in Germany's political class in exchange for Krasikov the U.S. is also attempting to secure the release of former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan serving a 16-year sentence on espionage charges. And let's just spend a couple more minutes on this Krasikov man, because this is quite interesting. So this is the Wikipedia page for the man who was assassinated, Zelim Khan Kangushvili. And in the discussion of the assassination, the Wikipedia entry says, the suspect, identified as a 56-year-old Russian national Vadim Sokolov by German police, was apprehended soon after the assassination. The Russian government and Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov had both been linked to the killing, so German police thought this man was named Vadim Sokolov. Kangashvili's assassin, detained by the German police, traveled on a valid Russian passport Issued under the fake identity of Vadim Sokolov. Reports by Der Spiegel and other media disclosed that the suspect traveled from Moscow to Paris to Warsaw, where he rented a hotel room for five days, during which he traveled to Berlin. Sokolov's passport was issued without any biometric data, the inclusion of which has been the default option for all Russian passports since 2009, except, quote, in emergency situations when the applicant has no time to wait for the fingerprint encryption and printing process, end quote. The Daily Beast noted that, quote, 20 GRU operatives outed by Bellingcat in recent years, including those suspected of poisoning Sergei Skripal, have used these old style passports in ultimately futile attempts to hide their cover identities. So once again, we have the same sort of thing here with Bellingcat. They have this list of people they have identified as Russian intelligence agents, and these people are going around all of Russia and all of Europe and assassinating Putin's enemies. This is the conclusion that Bellingcat has drawn. Now, they haven't proven any of these things at all. But the Western media has taken these claims. Western governments have backed these claims. And therefore, according to the authoritative source within the false reality, it is all true. Actually proving things does not matter. What matters is that this intel-linked, quote-unquote, independent journalism source that works in conjunction with the National Endowment for Democracy and Western Intelligence Agencies, they have tied enough red strings to enough thumbtacks to convince mainstream news consumers that they must be on to something, and world affairs are then conducted on that basis, or so we are told. The leaders and the governments currently opposing this global regime have not really been going along with any of this stuff. And the more it unravels, the more ridiculous all of the people involved continue to look. Let's continue for just a couple of minutes here, though. The investigative research network Bellingcat and the investigative authorities concluded that Sokolov was actually Vadim Krasikov, born in August 1965 in the then Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. Krasikov was also named as a suspect in the murder of a Russian businessman on 19 June 2013 in Moscow. The murder was recorded by a surveillance camera and had a similar pattern. A cyclist murdered the businessman from behind with a headshot. Therefore, if you assume that both stories are real, they confirm one another. The Russian Interpol Red Notice on 23 April 2014 against Krasikov was withdrawn on 7 July 2015 without a reason. Investigations by Bellingcat suggested that Krasikov was a member of the elite unit Vimpel. Police investigations in connection with the murder in Berlin revealed that Sokolov and Krasikov are the same person. No personal connections between Him and Kangoshvili were found to exist. Now, it might sound like I'm nitpicking, but they just said police investigations in connection with the murder in Berlin revealed that Sokolov and Krasikov are the same person. They link to an article that does not say that. What the article says is that prosecutors, German prosecutors, claim that they are the same person, and that claim is based on the work of Bellingcat. Now, I feel pretty safe in saying it is not possible to know what happened here, at least not for us. I'm not saying there's no one in the world who knows what happens. Of course, I believe there is. But for us, we are not going to be able to find out. We should just simply take note of the fact that none of this has to be true. German prosecutors taking a claim from quasi intel organization Bellingcat is not a factual claim about what happened in reality. And even the evidence that they are providing is not direct evidence. Every claim they're making is conjecture. The fact that all of these articles cite not only Bellingcat, but compare the incident to script ball and compare the incident to a prior murder from 2013 because someone rode up behind the man and shot him in the head. That's crazy. That's not proof of anything at all. And just to stay on this tangent for one more second, the problem that now arises in normal conversation is that someone will say, well, you don't know what happened and you can't prove this didn't happen and there must be something to it or else all these people wouldn't believe it. And the problem there is the assumption that the reported story now serves as the default explanation For an event we can't even prove happened, but even just leave that aside, the reported story does not become the default explanation and become probably true just because it was reported. The fact that it was reported almost guarantees it's not what happened, but most people are still highly connected to the central narrative. They're still in that mindset from the before times. And they believe it is now on you to somehow, quote unquote, prove that the news is lying, even though the news can't prove in any way whatsoever that it's telling the truth. And in fact, in the way that it lays out each detail, it's telling you that it doesn't know whether or not each detail is true. Let's go back to Wikipedia so that we can get the CIA approved central narrative on this alleged assassination on 4 December 2019, the federal attorney general took over the investigation into the case. This was justified by the fact that, quote, there were sufficient factual indications that the killing of Tornike K, which is zelemkhan Khan alias, was either commissioned by government agencies of Russia or of those by the Chechen Republic as part of The Russian Federation. On the same day, two members of the Military Intelligence Service, the GRU, in the Russian Embassy in Berlin were expelled from the country in connection with the investigation. And if you were trying to make fake news sound real, you would create new real world events that seem to confirm the official story. So if you have decided that Russia is responsible for this assassination, And you want the world to believe that you're definitely telling the truth. Well, then you could simply kick out two Russian diplomats and the world will understand that as the initial shots fired, the initial punishment for this grave crime Russia has committed. The only thing you need to believe is that the cause and effect are reversed. They want you to believe Germany has found that Russia did this thing. Therefore, they've kicked out two diplomats. When what the info op is designed to do is convince, quote unquote, Western audiences that Russia is responsible for this assassination. And one of the techniques used to do that is kick out two diplomats that says to the world, this thing is real. On 6 December 2019, several media outlets reported that the German Federal Intelligence Service, the BND, received credible information that a Russian Secret Service agent was attempting to kill Krasikov, while in remand to prevent possible statements from him. As a result, Krasikov was moved from the JVA Moabit to the high security wing of the JVA Tegel. I don't know if I'm saying the names of these German prisons properly. So the next step was that everyone was told Russia tried to assassinate the Russian assassin in prison so he wouldn't talk. They weren't able to do that, and here we are, four and a half years later, and he still hasn't talked. I guess Putin's assassins just couldn't get to him. In February 2020, Bellingcat suspected that the operation, both with training and with a false ID, was supported by the FSB RF. Once again, Bellingcat just writing the entire story. In June 2020, the federal prosecutor general brought charges against a Russian citizen, called the act a contract killing and accused the government of the Russian Federation as the mastermind behind Kangashvili's murder. According to the prosecution, the background to the killing order was Kangashvili's opposition to the Russian Federation's central government, the government of its autonomous republics in Chechnya and Ingushetia and the pro-Russian government of the Republic of Georgia. This was followed by a conversation between the Russian ambassador to Germany with the foreign office. The prosecution also named Roman D. as a possible accomplice, which confirmed Bellingcat's suspicions that more than one person was involved in the murder and identified one of them. Bellingcat pointed out that deliberately false references to the identity of the suspect had been circulated. So the entire story is written by Bellingcat. And if you recall the Putin interview with Tucker Carlson, Putin seemed to back up the man who killed Kongishvili. And here is what Putin has claimed Kongishvili has done. Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed that he was one of the perpetrators of a Moscow metro bombing. Zelim Khan denied that he was ever responsible for war crimes telling Georgian media, the Russians are blaming me for many things, including terrorist attacks. This is a lie. No one can provide any evidence that a single civilian was injured or killed in any of my actions. And here is the full comment they're citing from December 9th, 2019. Putin says you talked about the murder of a Georgian. That is not entirely true. I know a man that died in Berlin. He is not simply a Georgian. This is a man who took active part in combat actions on the side of separatists in the Caucasus. He is not technically a Georgian. This man is wanted by us. He is a militant. Moreover, he is a cruel and bloodthirsty person. In just one of the attacks in which he took part, 98 people were killed by him. He was one of the organizers of explosions in the Moscow metro. I don't know what happened to him. It's a criminal milieu and anything can happen there. So, he's saying that he took part in organizing the metro bombing. And Kangashvili, in his own words, said that there's no evidence he killed any civilians. That's not exactly the same as, no, I had nothing to do with that metro bombing. Are you crazy? So, this is some pretty serious international intrigue. This is the sort of thing you would see in like a Mission Impossible or Jason Bourne style movie. Now, in the Navalny documentary, That CNN made, the one that won an Oscar. The so called journalist from Bellingcat remarks that he has spent somewhere around $150,000 buying data and information on the black market and using information tools that other people don't have access to. And it is on the basis of this information that they have purchased from sources no one else has access to. That they are able to solve all of these mysteries. You can go to their Wikipedia page and see how many of these stories they've been involved with. They're basically the specialists of coming in and fixing the official story in order to present a convincing false reality. These were the sorts of things that no one ever really bothered to check. We had the central narrative and that was about it. We didn't really have the means or the ability to be able to study these issues and try to pull at these threads. And if you go through the list of stories that Bellingcat has worked on over the past few years, go into any of those stories and start pulling on any of the threads. They never really lead anywhere. Bellingcat has just figured things out. And let's just hit the last weird point from Zero Hedge here. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, ex-Marine Paul Whelan and schoolteacher Mark Fogel, are all still in Russian custody. Two Americans were supposed to be part of this alleged impending Navalny swap. According to more from Bloomberg, citing a Navalny family spokesperson, Pevchik didn't name the two Americans involved in the deal. Putin was clearly told that the only way to get Krasikov is to exchange him for Navalny, said Pevchik. Instead, he decided to, quote, get rid of the bargaining chip and offer someone else when the time comes. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Putin wants Krasikov. The only way he can get Krasikov is Navalny. And so he kills Navalny. That's what the Navalny people are saying. And let's consider how strange that is from the other direction. The United States and Germany. Want Alexei Navalny? Alexei Navalny is Russian. Why is the fake president more concerned about getting Alexei Navalny freed than he is about the Americans over there? And the same for Germany, by the way. Politico published an article last Monday with the headline, Who is Yulia Navalnya, Putin's new enemy? And it mentions a claim that is said to be debunked but isn't really that Yulia Navalny is a German citizen. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know that the debunking is a pretty weak one. Maybe that has something to do with Germany's motivation in trying to negotiate the swap for Alexei Navalny, but obviously that's not going to happen now. The Politico article also says, by the way, every public performance she gives, and this is Yulia, has come under intense scrutiny in Russian state-controlled media with commenters accusing her of being too cheerful or acting on the CIA's orders. Politico closes the article this way. Tatiana Stanovaya, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center, predicts ordinary Russians might be more skeptical of Yulia, saying, It will be difficult for her to break through to a Russian audience because of her image as someone who is not just a supporter of liberal Western values, but a figure used by the West to overthrow Putin at home in Russia. That's her curse. So again, is Alexei Navalny a credible opposition leader when the same people claiming that are admitting that Yulia will not be popular in Russia? because she is seen as doing the West's bidding. The lunatic from the Carnegie think tank also adds, in a sense, Navalny has now been reincarnated in his wife, but unlike Navalny, she is not in Russia. For the Russian regime, of course, this is rather bad news. Oh, yes, I am sure that Vladimir Putin is quaking in his boots. And I just want to quickly hit one other story before we talk about Donald Trump's big weekend. We're going to talk about some fake primary results. But this is from today and just the news. Delaware court rules permanent absentee and early voting laws violate the state constitution. The Delaware court has ruled that state laws on early and permanent absentee voting violate the state constitution. The state's Superior Court ruled Friday that a 2019 law passed by the state legislature, which allows 10 days of early voting, violates the state constitution and that the general election is to be held on one day. The court also found that the state's permanent absentee voting statute violates state law by allowing voters to be placed on a permanent absentee voting list where ballots would automatically be sent to them for each election. The voting laws were challenged in court by the Public Interest Legal Foundation. The group initially brought the lawsuit in 2022 on behalf of Michael Manella, an inspector of elections for the Delaware Department of Elections. The law firm also brought and won a lawsuit in the state Supreme Court on behalf of Manella in 2022 regarding a state law allowing same-day voter registration and universal vote-by-mail. The state's high court ruled that the law violated the state's constitution. This decision invalidated Delaware laws that allowed for early and permanent absentee voting. PILF President J. Christian Adams said Monday, states cannot pass election laws that conflict with their state constitution. This is a win for the rule of law. Now, what is this going to mean? That is a much bigger question than it might seem immediately, because we're talking about a change that was made in Delaware in 2019. So that means that change was implemented in 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, despite it being unconstitutional. What should be done to remedy that problem? What should be done in Delaware for the people of Delaware and for the people of the United States to remedy that problem? And it's not like this is the first state where this has happened. It happened in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania, and those cases are still in the appeals process. But we have election after election after election being held in states all across this country under rules put in place in violation of the state's own constitutions. Should any of those elections be considered legitimate? In my mind, that is an absolute unquestionable no. In fact, I'm not even sure if there's an argument in opposition to that which is not to say they wouldn't make one. I'm certain that they would make one. I'm certain that they would say, well, all of this has been certified. These elected officials have been placed in office. They've been doing their job. They've been bringing up legislation and passing it. We can't just very well take them all out of office now, to which I would say, oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. In fact, you have to. And in fact, you're going to because the idea That the uniparty can violate state constitutions all across the country and implement new rules and then have people elected under those unconstitutional rules and then to claim that the people have absolutely no recourse because under some interpretation laws were followed. Well, that's not even close to good enough. That means these people are there illegitimately. Because it's not just that the rules were put in place in violation of the Constitution. It's that all those rules that were put in place in violation of the Constitution, each and every one of them serves to reduce trust in the legitimacy of our elections. And that's why they were implemented. They make it easier to manipulate the outcome of elections. To then tell the people that their only recourse is to win future rigged elections is totally insufficient. Everyone should be prepared to stand up and say, this government is illegitimate. This is not going to be solved by winning rigged elections one cycle after the next, allowing them to violate the law, allowing them to control the election apparatus, allowing them to use lawfare to keep all of this illegitimacy in place. It's not going to work. They believe their system is going to be implemented In the next six years, and we're stuck begging establishment uniparty right rhinos to change this or that voting law in order to make some progress around the margins. If you are thinking and acting in accordance with their system, you are not going to escape their system. You need to actively reject their system and every aspect of it that you are able to reject. And people are going to take different approaches on this based on what they feel comfortable doing, based on what they think they can do effectively. I'm not telling anybody to risk their freedom or place their families at risk. Please don't do that. But you can constantly find small ways to separate yourself further from their system. How many things do we as Americans just automatically take for granted and believe Things that we have to participate in because the government says so that we actually don't have to participate in simply because the government is actually not allowed to say that we have to participate in those things. The Constitution is what guides and limits what the government can do. And they have ignored that for a really, really long time. And unfortunately, they've built up this system of laws and distorted our justice system to make it cost prohibitive when not impossible for average American citizens to stand up for their constitutional rights in the face of constant violations of those rights. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of stuff that we just simply don't have to do, and no one has ever challenged it. Most people don't actively search for the loopholes and inadequacies and weaknesses in their system, but they're there. And often you can exploit them simply by Just not complying. We need to stop thinking of our government as that which tells us how we are allowed to live. We are what tells the government how they are allowed to govern. And if they steal elections and change the laws so that our constitution no longer exists, and so our elections no longer count our votes, we don't actually have to respect that government or keep that government. We as the people need to come together and reject that government. The Supreme Court ruled in Marbury v. Madison that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void. We need to stop allowing them to get away with this. And part of that is breaking out of the two-party controlled opposition dynamic, the uniparty right and the uniparty left. As long as you think the other team is the problem and yours isn't, you remain in that controlled opposition two-party political dynamic, and you can't move outside of it and actually focus on principles. This stuff isn't better when it benefits Republicans because that little R next to their name isn't actually the key to any of this. But let's move from unconstitutional elections to fake primaries. On Saturday evening, we had a fake primary in the state of South Carolina. Donald Trump was immediately Announce the winner. Polls close. Results come in. Donald Trump is the winner. And here we are some 40 odd hours later, and we don't have 100 percent of the vote counted, depending on which official media source you are looking at. There is somewhere above 95 percent of the vote in somewhere above 98 percent of the vote in somewhere above 99 percent of the vote in. But it's not 100. It's been nearly forty eight hours and it's not a hundred percent of the voted now the winner isn't in question. Donald Trump is up according to these numbers fifty nine point eight percent to nikki haley's thirty nine point five percent so there's no question who the winner is, but as it stands now, Nikki Haley gets three out of the fifty delegates in south carolina twenty nine go to the winner, and then Three delegates are assigned for the winner of each congressional district. And they are saying right now that it looks like Nikki Haley might win one of those or did win one, but might win one. Who knows? Maybe we will never get 100% of the vote in. And here's another thing that you might think is crazy, but that I have been noticing for years. You can go back in elections that are long since over and still see that 100% of the vote isn't in. Like I just checked right now, Arizona's 2022 results. The race for governor, estimated vote in 99%. The race for Senate, estimated vote in 99%. Arizona House, each one of those races has an estimated vote in of 99%. Somehow, the races for Secretary of State and Attorney General are only 98% in and proposition 309 to enact stricter voter ID requirements only 94% in now you can say that's just cnn maybe not updating their site but that's also kind of strange because on cnn it says for various races updated 4:23 p.m. on april 26th or updated 5:32 p.m. on december 29th now I don't even know what year they're talking about. Was it 22? Was it 23? I don't know. But I do know that no matter what, it was at least two months after the election happened. So they couldn't get 100% in and reported despite updating almost two months after the election happened. You can go to the Georgia races for the same year, same thing. Now, I looked on the New York Times website. They don't publish the results the same way. 538's website says it's 100% of the vote in for all of those. The Washington Post's website says we estimate around all votes cast have been counted. Now, I don't know what to make of all this, but it is very weird and it's something that I keep an eye on, so I'm sharing it with you. But getting back to South Carolina, Donald Trump right now is said to have 451,905 votes. Votes. The New York Times website, again, that says 95% plus of the votes are in, says this is updated this morning at 10 a.m. So at some point on Saturday night, new votes stopped coming in despite not being 100% counted. And here we are nearly two full days later, and we are in the same position with the same number of votes. Now, to make all of this even a little bit weirder, on Saturday night at one point, Trump was actually 452,000 plus votes, and that number dropped back down. These are all supposedly coming from the official source, which is the decision desk headquarters. This is where the media decides who wins elections and by how much, essentially. According to their current count, there were about 756,000 votes recorded and Potentially still some to come in. That is roughly the same number that were recorded in 2016, which is the last time a South Carolina primary was held. Donald Trump received about 240,000 votes in that primary. Newt Gingrich actually held the record from 2012 he beat out Mitt Romney in the 2012 cycle and had about 244,000 votes. Now, the reason I mention that is because two times during Trump's victory speech in South Carolina on Saturday evening, he said that he had received twice the record number of votes in a South Carolina GOP primary. Now, for that to be technically true, he would have to have somewhere around 490,000 votes. So he's about 35 to 40,000 votes shy of that right now. I will let you be the judge of whether or not this counts as doubling the highest previous total, but he said it a couple of times, and here's what's important about that. He said it right as the results started being reported on the news from that decision desk authoritative source. Trump was up on stage in South Carolina beginning his victory speech just minutes after 7 p.m. on the East Coast. And at that point, results had just started coming in from that race in South Carolina. And Donald Trump was already saying, I received twice as many votes as the previous record total. Now, how did Trump know this? We can leave aside for a second that none of these numbers should be trusted. The actual total vote doesn't matter at all. Let's just push the exact number aside and just think about knowing the total. Trump knew the total. He wasn't saying right now with 1% of the vote in, I have double the previous total. That doesn't even make sense. He was clearly indicating he knew the final outcome and that it was twice the most votes previously recorded. So how does something like this happen? I don't know, but I do know that Trump is shining a bright light on yet another manipulated aspect of our elections. And that is the way they roll out the vote totals. They make it as if it's a sporting event and the score just runs up one team against the other. Who's going to win? It's in doubt until the end and the entire time they are establishing narratives to explain the results that are coming in. But that process has always been a bit ridiculous, hasn't it? Many times we are given a projected winner immediately. Oh, this is a red state, of course, Senator blah, blah, blah is going to win here. And then over the past few cycles, we have also established the trend of having no idea who won for two weeks or three weeks, or having a winner declared by the television and then watching the votes come in and understanding, oh, That's not actually what happened. Now, as soon as you observe that phenomenon, the media getting it wrong, the media applying different principles to different races, it should become immediately clear then that the media is not an authoritative source for announcing the winners of elections. They've announced winners and then withdrawn their announcements of winners going all the way back to 2000. As soon as they announce a winner, often people just tune out. They stop paying attention to that election, the vote total as it comes in. They tell people that the outcome was never in doubt. And they even did this for the recall election of Gavin Newsom. When I was in Los Angeles in 2020, I was participating in the recall of Gavin Newsom. My friends and I held a signature gathering event. It was September 2020. It had been six months of ridiculous California lockdowns. People were getting sick of Gavin. So he was finally recalled. They had the election. And California announced the winner of the election as soon as the polls closed. It was Gavin Newsom. He still had 60% of California on his side despite getting recalled and despite Californians being sick of him. Even in Los Angeles, people were sick of Gavin Newsom. And by the way, if you go to CNN's live results of California's recall election in 2021, wouldn't you know it? Estimated vote in 99%. The vote totals they have up for that election, 7.94 million votes for Gavin and 4.89 million to get rid of him. So that is just under 13 million total votes. Now in the 2020 presidential contest in California, there were only 17.1 million votes. So in an off year recall election, Gavin Newsom received only three million fewer votes than Joe Biden received in California as California came out in droves to make sure that Donald Trump could never be president again. And I guess they just didn't have to wait for the mail-in ballots for that election. Gavin is just so overwhelmingly popular that they knew he won with something like two thirds of the vote. Despite the fact that California recalled him and they're trying to do it again now. Now, the reason I'm harping on this is because, as I've said many times, elections, if the votes don't count, are strictly narrative battles. And as I mentioned when discussing the Navalny situation, the media tells the story and that immediately becomes the default scenario for everyone. They believe an event happened. This is roughly what happened in this event. And we are going to go with this story until it gets proven wrong by someone else who can prove that they are more authoritative about this story. Think back to November 3rd, 2020. Donald Trump is up huge in Pennsylvania. He's up in Michigan. He's up in Georgia and Fox News comes out and they call Arizona for Joe Biden. And then the counting has stopped. So everyone might as well just go to bed. We're not going to know what happened here until later. It's like we've been telling you, we have to wait for these mail-in ballots to come in. There's going to be this red mirage. Trump is going to do really well on election day, but then all of these other votes are going to come in and those votes are actually going to decide the election. It's not people going out to vote on election day. It's not even the people who mailed their ballots in Before election day, it's going to be all those votes that come in after election day. And the country was prepared to accept that that constituted a legitimate election because they had been told up front so many times that that would happen. They were told to expect it. They were told this is going to be normal. And even with all of that, I still wonder if people would have actually bought it if Fox hadn't come out to say that Arizona went to Biden it would have been hard for anyone to go to bed thinking that Joe Biden even had a chance at that point. And of course he didn't. Donald Trump won by a lot. But let's return to where we started. What does it mean that Donald Trump knew the vote total right after the election was over and the media who covers these elections in real time all the time? That's just what we expect. The media is going to broadcast these election results that are going to roll out over the course of an evening as the results come in in real time. We are imagining the votes being counted. The process is playing out in real time at all these precincts or now just voting centers. Hey, let's go down to the NBA stadium and decide who the president's going to be. We imagine That they're counting in real time. Oh, I got another hundred votes to tell you the result of. Let me send those in to the news. And that whole process takes hours, apparently, or days now. Back when they had small precincts, there was only a few hundred votes to count. And a few good men and women from the neighborhood would count those votes and they would report those votes. Now we are led to believe that despite the world's greatest technology for election systems ever, we can't have the machines count the vote and give us a result immediately. We are told to believe that's not how it works. Well, that is how it worked on Saturday for Trump. He knew the total, but it's not what happened for anyone else. Apparently, the very official decision desk still doesn't have the vote total. All of the websites who host the results coming in directly from the decision desk, they have the same numbers. They have the same vote totals. And to almost everyone who cares about these things, the election is over. Trump won by a lot. Who cares about the details? But we're being shown that the counting, despite being unfinished, has stopped. Who knows if it will ever restart again? Maybe they don't want people to be able to prove beyond doubt that Trump got twice as many votes. Maybe they want to be able to say he's just making that up. He hasn't gotten there. They've also been trying to pretend, of course, that Nikki Haley had a good showing with just under 40 percent of the vote in her home state. But that's ridiculous. So somehow before the votes from the decision desk had been announced to the public, Donald Trump already knew what the final results were very early in the evening. The polls closed. Results started to come out. Donald Trump hit that stage and gave a victory speech. The media called the race for Donald Trump. So it's not like a victory speech for a politician would have been weird at that point. The one thing that is weird is that twice, twice, he said his vote total doubled the previous record. And if the votes are being counted in real time and being reported by the news in real time over the course of an evening, over the course of a few hours then it's not possible for Donald Trump to know that he would have doubled the previous total at that point in time, which can only lead us to believe that the process we are watching roll out in real time is a complete and total sham. And we've had plenty of proof in the past to already believe that. But now it's just right in our faces. And Donald Trump is pointing right at it. And he's saying, look at this. The media is scamming you. I know the final result and they are going to present this process to you so that you believe a counting process is occurring. Now, some people have tried to hand wave this and explain it away by saying that they do exit polling and that from the exit polling, Trump knew that he would receive twice as many votes as the previous record total. Now, there are a couple of problems with this, and the first one is that there's no reason to believe that exit polling is any more accurate than any other kind of polling. They could make exit polls up from nothing, and we would not know the difference. And in this case, you would not only have to have extremely accurate exit polling, but you would also need an extremely accurate number of expected votes at that point. Now, is that possible? I suppose it's
1: possible, but Trump didn't say that. This was a little sooner than we anticipated. It was an even bigger win than we anticipated. And I was just informed that we got double the number of votes that has ever been received in the great state of South Carolina. So that's pretty good. So it's a record times two. And there's something going
2: on in the country. So when Trump was speaking it was seven oh seven PM Eastern time. I may have said before that the polls close at six thirty. The polls close at seven. So seven minutes later, Donald Trump is out on stage saying that he was just told he received twice as many votes as the previous record. He doubled the record. That is a pretty specific claim he made. It's so specific that I would argue making the case. That Trump was actually referring to exit polls and then estimating based on expected turnout would be an example of intentionally misunderstanding what he's saying in order to make his statement conform to an explanation that normalizes what he said. There's nothing normal about what he said. He said that the vote total is in and he knows it seven minutes after the polls close. And he's close enough with the totals widely reported by the very official decision desk headquarters to being accurate in his statement that you have to assume he knew what he was talking about. Now, not only is he one of the candidates in this fake primary campaign and you would hope that candidates have immediate access to election results, but he's also the duly elected president or as the mainstream media calls him a former president. Certainly no one would deny that in his first term as president, he would have extraordinary access to information, maybe better access to information than anyone in the entire world. And despite that, we are supposed to pretend that he is a dumb man and does not know what he's talking about, never knows what he's talking about, that he's always just pulling his facts from thin air. But he certainly had excellent information in that first term where he was recognized as president. This second four year period where he is the legitimately elected president, despite the display being that Joe Biden is the president, he still has excellent access to information. And then, of course, he is a candidate and should have excellent access to information, regardless of how they actually give candidates access to information in South Carolina. So the question becomes. Do candidates normally have access to the election results, the vote totals, immediately after the polls close, or do candidates watch the results on television with everyone else? Because if the totals are known the moment the polls close and political candidates are waiting until the television decides they have won, then they're playing along with the show. I suppose it would also be possible for state officials to be holding back election results from the candidates and from the media, I suppose. And in that case, they would be playing along with the show and they would be manipulating the public perception of elections. And that would be malfeasance when it comes to elections and election reporting. None of these options are good. In fact, all of them suggest that we are being manipulated relative to our elections by at least the media and the political parties and probably the candidates. Trump said twice in his brief speech that started about 7.05 Eastern time, five minutes after the polls closed, that he received double the previous record total votes and the total number of votes reported for Donald Trump by the official decision desk wasn't even over 400,000 Until three or four hours later, this should not be possible if elections play out the way we are told they play out. So Nikki Haley got crushed in her home state and she has vowed to just keep on fighting. She's going to keep on campaigning and keep on going on television to say bad things about Donald Trump for no reason. Now, people can complain that she is somehow hurting the party. She's going to tear down Donald Trump. I don't buy that. I don't care. Nikki Haley has no real effect. People do not believe Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley might be entertaining Democrats who hate Trump because she is helping them get their fill of Trump hate. But if there is that mythical undecided voter who can't determine whether or not he or she is going to vote for Donald Trump again in the 2024 very real election. Their mind isn't going to be made up by things Nikki Haley said in February. The only Republicans she appeals to are just Democrats with little R's next to their name. The sorts of people who watched Joe Biden steal an election. The sorts of people who knew that Joe Biden had not received 81 million real lawful American votes and just went along with it anyway because they didn't really like having to defend Donald Trump as Republicans. They enjoy being standard issue villagers and they identify with the uniparty right. It really isn't more complicated than that. So Nikki Haley is going to continue campaigning despite having absolutely no chance to defeat Donald Trump. And we're going to be told continuously that that is in case Donald Trump actually gets convicted in one of these ridiculous cases. But all of that is absurd and it wouldn't prevent Donald Trump from running and it wouldn't prevent Donald Trump from winning. So that's not the answer. There's no way that Nikki Haley thinks she's going to be the Republican nominee if Donald Trump is somehow convicted in one of these fake cases. Donald Trump supporters are not going to abandon Donald Trump in that instance. They could lock him up, throw away the key and take his name off the ballot And Trump supporters still are not going to go out and vote for Nikki Haley. They'll just go out and write in Donald Trump and Donald Trump will still win if the election is legitimate. If we have legitimate elections, Donald Trump wins by a landslide. MAGA wins by a landslide. And we create a situation where real changes can be made in this country. If we do not have legitimate elections by the time November rolls around, we're going to see Joe Biden get 100 million votes. The problem isn't convincing the country that Trump is the right man for the job. The problem is that our elections are fake, which is why I think it makes a whole lot more sense to focus on the elections being fake than trying to harvest ballots and doing all of these other things we hear RNC types talking about. All of those so-called solutions are actually part of the problem. They support the legitimacy and the process of the election fraud apparatus. And even the one thing that people would see as an unequivocal good, which is registering voters still helps the other side because those voter registrations are raw materials for election fraud. If we are actually going to fix the system, then the voter registries need to be purged completely and rebuilt from zero. So creating new voter registries now is not how to fix the country. Now, the uniparty right and the uniparty left in mainstream media outlets can talk all about how Nikki is staying in this in case Trump gets taken down in one of these fake trials that they think are very, very real. But if they're not actively lying, then the problem is that they've convinced themselves that their prior lies are true. Standard issue uniparty villagers think that all of this is still as politics always was all the political analysis that they have learned to repeat over the course of their lives is just still true. They think that Donald Trump might go to prison and so he will need a replacement as the Republican presidential candidate, and then at the end of the day, it'll just be that Republican against Joe Biden or whoever he's replaced with. And it'll just be an election as normal, somewhere around 50% on each side. We're all going to go cast our real votes and they're going to really count all those votes. But that analysis only makes sense within the false reality that doesn't even account for the existence of the uniparty, much less the effect of it. They are told that Donald Trump isn't even all that popular among his own party. They believe that only 35 to 40 percent of the American public supports Donald Trump. This is what they are told. This is what they've been told from 2016. So it's not like they realize over time that it's been wrong the whole time. They just believe that every time they are told it again, it continues to be true. They think that MAGA is a fringe minority. They do not understand that MAGA is a vast majority in this country. So you can't just swap out Donald Trump, replace him with any old Republican and expect that Trump voters are going to come out and vote for that Republican. It's not going to happen. We're still going to come out and vote for Donald Trump. So Nikki Haley is not going to be the Republican nominee. And if the Republican Party somehow attempted to do that, they would lose the vast majority of the party immediately. So that isn't an option. But if you are a uniparty right establishment Republican and you are already openly at war with Donald Trump, then you can be like people like Mitt Romney or Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney and simply say, Donald Trump does not represent the Republican Party I know, and I cannot, in good conscience, put my support behind Donald Trump. Therefore, I'm going to go against my party on this one unfortunate occasion, and I will continue to support Republicans down ballot. And now they can't go out and support Donald Trump, so they would have to actually say, well, I'm not going to be casting a vote for president this year, unless there's another option. And there may be another option, and that option might explain why Nikki Haley is still out there. This is Joe Cunningham from the No Labels Party on Fox News. Uh, this has been a project
3: uh, to essentially give Americans another choice if they're unhappy with the presumptive nominees, which you know it appears is going to be Trump versus Biden right now. But we don't know Nikki Haley; she's going to remain in the race. You can't count her out completely. Uh, and hats off to her for staying in it and for sticking with it. But we're looking for great, quality people, folks that have broad appeal to independents, Democrats, Republicans. And, um, and yeah, I mean, Nikki Haley is somebody we'd, we'd definitely be interested in. And what's your timeline in selecting a candidate? So we won't be making a decision before Super Tuesday. We've said from the onset that after Super Tuesday, we're going to look at who the presumptive nominees are. And if the vast majority of Americans are unhappy with those, and we feel like we can put forward a ticket or offer our ballot line to to candidates who can win, then we're going to offer that ballot line. And the ballot coverage for no labels at this point, um, we've read it's pretty extensive throughout the country. We're in a great spot right now. Uh, You know, we're on uh, 16 states currently. We have a pathway to get on all 50 states plus Washington, D.C. It's important for folks to remember at this particular time when Ross Perot was running, he was on zero states. And so, uh, you know, we're right on track, if not ahead of the game. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just securing ballot access right now. That's what we're focused on. And what I want to say, too, Will, is a lot of folks who, you know, may view a third party, a third ticket with some skepticism. Here's what they need to know. In a competitive three-way race in every state in our country with exception to all electoral votes go to the candidate who wins the most number of votes in their state. Like, so for example, in South Carolina, Michigan, uh, Georgia, in a competitive three way race, a candidate can win all electoral votes with as little as 34, 35% of the vote. You don't have to get over
2: 50%. All right. So I've been talking about the No Labels Party for a few years now, and it seems to be ready for its big moment. Now, I don't know if we've ever talked about Chekhov's gun before. But Chekhov's gun is basically a principle of storytelling that says if you've introduced a particular element that kind of stands out in some way, you're going to see that element be used at some point in the narrative. And the example attributed to Anton Chekhov is if a writer puts a gun in a scene early on in a fictional work, whether it's a play or a movie or a novel, a short story, whatever, if the writer puts the gun in there, the gun will and should later be used. And so applying that to No Labels, No Labels came out years ago. It was clearly well-branded, it was well-funded, and it was obvious that it could serve a purpose in the future, knowing that Joe Biden was illegitimate and incompetent. Now, the No Labels party has been around since 2010, but they have been talking about getting heavily involved in this election cycle now for a few years. Back in 2022, they were polling the viability of a third-party candidate, and there was even talk of them holding their own nominating convention, though they have since decided that it would be done by secret committee. And in the past, there's been talk of people like Evan McMullen or Andrew Yang or Liz Cheney, But now we have a spokesman for no labels coming out and saying that they would be open to a Nikki Haley candidacy. And that kind of changes the entire perspective on how we're viewing this race and the rest of the fake GOP primary. Now, candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy and Tim Scott, they never really went negative on Trump. They've occasionally made stupid or insulting comments, but their campaigns were not specifically anti-Trump not in the way that other candidates were. Chris Christie was specifically anti-Trump. Nikki Haley is specifically anti-Trump. Ron DeSantis is specifically anti-Trump. And all of those candidates spent plenty of time going on MSNBC and CNN and making their pitch to the audiences of those left-wing cable news outlets. Now, you can call it all kayfabe, and if you're going to go that route, then kayfabe can be used to explain away honestly anything. But if we're going to leave that interpretation aside, and I get it, it's still possible, I suppose. But leaving that interpretation aside, what have these candidates been doing in this fake primary throughout this time? And more specifically, what is Nikki Haley doing now? Because Nikki Haley can actually win over some of those uniparty left standard issue villagers. They don't like Joe Biden, but they know that they sure as hell aren't voting for Donald Trump. They want some other option. They want to put their energy behind someone who can lead them to a bright new future where everything stays the same as it always was. That's what they wanted in Joe Biden, and he just didn't deliver. They know that the extreme left is insane. They don't want that. And they don't want anything to do with MAGA because they've been part of an anti-MAGA hate group for the last eight years. They're not just going to come down off that and say, oh, yeah, maybe these people were right. They are never, ever going to do that. Wannabe elites will be the last people to come around and say that MAGA was right. Until the incentive structure and the punishment structure within the party of false decorum change, these people are going to remain as members in the anti-Trump hate movement. And for people like that who see themselves as moderates or see themselves as centrists, well, a no labels Nikki Haley candidacy gives them a perfect option. It is something that is clearly not Donald Trump. It allows them to display their anti-Trumpness without getting on board with what Joe Biden has done, despite the fact that they've already supported Joe Biden. Now, I don't know if Nikki Haley is going to end up being the no labels candidate, but I know that from a narrative perspective, it would make a lot of sense. They want to figure out a way that Donald Trump didn't win and that they can explain that Donald Trump didn't win to the rest of the country. Well, this gives them that opportunity, even if Joe Biden isn't replaced. Maybe they think they could convince the country Gavin won or Michelle Obama won or Gretchen Whitmer won. I doubt they believe they can convince the country that Hillary Clinton won. But depending on events, by that time, maybe they believe that they can convince the country Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden in a few places and Nikki Haley in a bunch of other places, and that that was enough to make Nikki Haley the winner. Or maybe they find some way to make it so that there is no winner and force the election to be decided as a contingent election based on state delegations. The point is that they open up as many possible outs as they can. If each one of their paths to victory requires the possibility for a narrative win and the possibility that they can rig the election in a way that will support the narrative win and they leave themselves 10 of those pathways... They only need one to work. So the idea is to create as many of those as possible to leave themselves as many different opportunities to get a result they can live with as they possibly can. And Nikki Haley being a no labels candidate might give them exactly that. It would probably also align with an absolute waterfall of uniparty globalist donors who would be more than happy to take out their checkbooks In an attempt to further harm Donald Trump in the eyes of the public and give them every last opportunity to keep Donald Trump from going out and doing what he promises to do. And Nikki Haley is going to need those donors because it was also announced over the weekend, following her loss in the fake primary in South Carolina, that she would be losing the money from the Koch network. This is from Politico yesterday. Coke Network stops spending on Nikki Haley's presidential campaign. Americans for Prosperity Action, the powerful conservative group supporting Nikki Haley in the Republican presidential primary, will no longer spend money on behalf of her campaign. In an email to staff obtained by Politico, Americans for Prosperity CEO Emily Seidel said Sunday that the group's political arm, AFP Action, had to quote unquote take stock of its spending priorities after Haley's loss in the South Carolina primary. The Coke aligned group, Seidel said, will now focus its efforts on competitive Senate and House races. AFP action's decision is the latest blow to Haley's long shot presidential bid, which has sustained losses in four early nominating states and the Virgin Islands, including on Saturday. When former president Donald Trump beat Haley in her home state by 20 points, Haley declared she will continue on in her primary fight, but has only committed to running through super Tuesday on March 5th. So that is one week from tomorrow. We are really getting into the thick of this fake primary season. It is also expected that Ronna Romney McDaniel will step down as head of the RNC. It seems now like she will be replaced by Michael Watley and Laura Trump. And I suppose we shall see what that means. But in 10 days, we may be looking at a situation where Donald Trump is just the so-called presumptive nominee and the focus on the primaries is entirely shifted. And that would be sad. To the extent that these primaries are real, the down-ballot primaries actually matter. We've heard very little about that. It's like they're not even happening. So before Donald Trump headed down to South Carolina to give his victory speech in the fake primary on Saturday, he spoke before CPAC, gave a really great speech, a couple really notable moments, and I want to try to go through them quickly before we wrap up here. And I want to start with this. If you watched Devolution Power Hour on Saturday evening on Badlands, you've already heard me address this clip, but I think it's important. It really stuck out to me. So I want to share it here. For context, Trump is talking about Biden's incompetence and the possibility that he might not only get us into World War III, but will put us in a position to be losing World War III.
1: These are the stakes of this election. Our country is being destroyed, and the only thing standing between you and its obliteration is me. It's true. It's true. Victor Orban, somebody I respect greatly. A lot of people respect him. Tough guy, smart guy. He made the statement recently. He said, uh, you bring back Trump, it'll all stop. They all listened to Trump. They respected Trump. He actually said it stronger than he said. They were afraid of Trump. I don't want people to be afraid of me. But he said, China was afraid. Russia was afraid. They were all afraid of Trump. Bring him back and it'll all go back. And I will tell you, uh, we had things at a level that nobody's ever seen before. We had no wars. We had defeated ISIS. We got rid of the worst terrorists in the world. You know that. We defeated, we took 100% of ISIS, gone. And then we had no wars for four years. We had no wars. First time in 72 years that that happened. No wars.
2: Now, this is one of those moments when it's kind of sad that such a large portion of this country is still addicted to the central narrative and to the mainstream media. And they've never actually heard Donald Trump speak. They have no idea what it is that Donald Trump actually believes or who the man is. Donald Trump just said he does not want people to fear him. And it was as sincere and as authentic as you could ever see Donald Trump. He says, Victor Orban says they feared Trump. I don't want to be feared. The common media narrative is that Donald Trump wants to bend everyone to his will in all circumstances so that he can get his way and increase power for himself. We are told that the reason the Republican Party goes along with him is because they fear him. And then we are told that they also fear his voters, which we are supposed to think is a bad thing. Voters you see are supposed to follow the quote unquote elected representatives. It's not the other way around that voters elect someone who is going to do their bidding and represent them in the halls of power. It's that they're meant to be led, but they portray Donald Trump as someone who wants to be feared. He knows that fear and anger and hatred and Bitterness and resentment, that's how you build a coalition. That's how you take power. That is what they always say about Donald Trump and about MAGA. They're pretending we're trying to take this country by force while we are censored and all the rest of it, while our side has all the guns and all the veterans. And despite that, there has been no violent takeover, no violence in the streets. They have a fake insurrection, and that's the only thing they can point to. It's not even enough to cover up their summer of love. Another point at which they tried to pretend that Donald Trump wanted everyone to fear him. Remember, he was using his stormtroopers to remove Antifa after they'd been attacking a courthouse for 100 nights in a row. That right there from Trump is leadership. That is what it means to be a good leader. He understands his power. The other leaders respect him and they respect the fact that he will use that power, but he doesn't want to be feared because he respects them too. The Trump haters out there will never hear that. They will never understand that. Here's another great moment.
1: We're not respected anywhere anymore. We're laughed at. We've become a joke as a country. For years, you've watched as the entire Washington cesspool has been feeding on the wealth and hopes and dreams of hardworking Americans, really hardworking Americans. They've feasted on the profits of job-killing trade deals. They've gorged themselves on the spoils of endless wars. And now what they crave, they want it so badly, is permanent political power and dominance for whatever reason. They're sickos, that's why. In 2016, we gave these corrupt insiders their chance to change and With Biden, they answered with hoaxes and witch hunts, censorship, lockdowns, and with total repression. Eight years later, the swamp has rejected your righteous pleas to reform. And we have to do this and we're going to reform and we're going to have freedom again. We're going to have freedom again. We do not have freedom.
2: Now, that is very interesting. In 2016, we gave them a chance to change their ways. And for eight years, they have rejected your righteous pleas for reform. That cannot be any simpler. And I think it illustrates a big picture concept here when it comes to this period under Trump's leadership. And I count the last four years as that as well. I think it is a credit to Trump and a credit to the MAGA movement. There is an understanding that we've all been lied to in some way. Maybe there were people out there who got it the whole time. I'm sure that some of you listening have gotten it the whole time. If that's you, congratulations. I'm personally in awe of people who were never asleep. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how you survived it. Congratulations. But if you're not one of those people, all of us understand that at some point we woke up and there's that bright dividing line there before I didn't know. Now I know. And once you get to that point and you say, now I know, which means I have to always do better and not do those things I used to do. Well, there's a lot of openness there from people on our side to accept that the things that happened before are not representative of who you are now. And because we all understand this individually and collectively That means that people who may have messed up in the past should be given a second chance if they are trying to turn it around and make things right. And Trump has been open to that. The movement has been open to it. All of us are representative of that. And it's true in an ongoing sense. Donald Trump is saying you were given a chance. Everyone is given a chance. All of the people in the establishment had an opportunity to turn it around. And maybe one day we'll find out that certain people have flipped sides. Maybe they've become whistleblowers. Maybe they've played some critical role in exposing all of this to the American people. But by and large, the regime simply said no and tried to exert their will through all manner of repression. They have ignored the righteous pleas of the American people. And any government that does that just on that basis alone is illegitimate. It is all that much worse when the government is literally illegitimate because the elections aren't real. Now, Trump gave multiple speeches over the weekend. He spoke at the Black Conservative Federation on Friday night, basically did stand up comedy, was crushing it. Just people laughing hysterically in the audience. That's Donald Trump, the supposed racist, just crushing in a comedy routine in front of an audience That is almost 100% black, but he was also funny in this CPAC speech. And there was a moment about 45 or so minutes in where he was telling a story about immigration. And then he began to go off on a tangent about ISIS. And then knowing that the media has been getting on his case for going off on different tangents, he actually decided to confront that point they've been trying to make stick. Head on.
1: I'll deviate on the stories Now, by the way, when I deviate, they'll say, oh, he went from... No, no. A really smart person can go through various stories, always come back and conclude everything. Okay? Don't worry, we'll get back to the... We'll get back to Mexico. But this is almost... Right now, this is more exciting. So the plane's off. I say, why are you doing that? Because, sir, we're flying.
2: And so from there, he goes into a long story about landing and meeting General Raisin Kane and about eventually taking out ISIS. And he goes on that tangent for 25 or 30 minutes, and sure enough, he brings it back around. And he's right, by the way, that is not an easy thing to do. You essentially have to have the entire narrative arc already in your head and be focused enough on that central narrative arc to keep all the tangents you go on in contact with that narrative arc. And let's just hit one more clip here. Donald Trump is telling the story that he told in the Tucker Carlson interview and that he has mentioned at various rallies. He talks about water pressure and low flow faucets that are supposed to somehow save the world from our water shortage. And he's talking about California here.
1: Shit, no water's coming now. Drop it drops out. You turn on the shower. I'm going to take a shower tonight. My hair is going to look better than it ever looked. I get that whole deal ready. I'm all set to go. Turn on the shower. Ding. Ding. Now, and they have so much water. I said to some of our great congressmen that asked me to help them with a the problem up in that area, up north in California. I said, I see you have a drought. They said, no, we don't have a drought. We have so much water, you don't know what to do. But they send it out to the Pacific. Uh, we're not going to let them get away with that any longer. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And frankly, I believe, you know, I gave a, I gave a speech up there. We had like 100,000 people show up. I said, what the hell is going on over here? I always hear Republicans can't win. California, you can't win. I will tell you, if God came down and God was the vote checker, I believe we would win California. I think it's so crazy. They send out 36... Million ballots get sent out to people unknown. They're sent out all over the place. How many people from California know people that get six, seven, eight ballots? Okay, our elections are so corrupt. I think we'd do very well. I think I would do very well in California, actually, and uh, I think I would do well in a lot of places because it's common sense. Remember, not conservative. It's common sense. I'm conservative, but the word is com- the words are common sense. And I
2: think he's right. If God came down to count the votes, Donald Trump would win California. He also would have won California in 2020, which, as far as I'm concerned, means he did win, because when this all actually does get adjudicated, there ain't no way Joe Biden's wins are going to hold up anywhere. California has the fakest elections imaginable. But Trump right there is saying the same thing I just said about a half an hour or so ago. MAGA's is already the majority. MAGA is the majority everywhere even in California. All that matters is legitimate elections. You want to take the country back, expose the election fraud. No matter what else happens, if election fraud is not exposed, then we haven't saved the country. And if election fraud is exposed, then saving the country is inevitable. Everything turns on that. The only issue that even comes close to that one in terms of our ability to actually take Control and achieve accountability on the great many crimes against America, against humanity, against children. It's elections and the currency. With legitimate elections and the removal of the central bankers, all of the other problems can be solved. None of the other problems can be solved without those two things. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Mast and lockdowns don't work.